Amen. Go ahead and get in your Bible to Psalm 50. Yeah, because my mom is in, uh, in town. Uh, all our boys came over with the, the kids yesterday. And um, in the summer, I always turn our, our hot tub down to like 90, so it's like a cool tub. And um, the kids can stand in that. And so I was playing in there with them, and somebody eye-gouged me. And uh, so, like, my left eye is red and, and swollen. And, like, I wake up in the middle of the night last night, got tears running down my nose. And uh, if it looks like Sharon hit me, you can spread that rumor. But in here, I mean, actually what happened is I was eye-gouged by a grandkid. And uh, I uh, should survive, at least Lord willing. Uh, it's all good, though. I uh, should be in Psalm 50 before we start, uh, like we have always done. Just want to take a few moments to answer uh, some of the questions that have been turned in. And as always, these are a combination of questions that were turned in this time and questions. I have lots of the ones from the past, and sometimes I leave them around just because they make a point or are especially helpful. Question one, my spouse's coworkers are all the opposite gender. I trust my spouse, but I don't trust uh, their coworkers. What should I do? Um, first off, everybody has fears. Uh, the things we are most afraid of and the things that bother us most, they vary a lot from person to person depending on you know, our natural disposition, depending on our life experiences, depending on our spouse experiences. Our, our, our fears uh, vary. Uh, if you're the concerned spouse, uh, I would start off with expressing your concerns in a good tone and at a good time. If you're the employee, uh, you need to do everything you can to reassure your spouse of your love, your loyalty, your commitment to them. If you're the employee, you should set some special standards for yourself that your wife knows about. Uh, I mean, for instance, uh, I would never go, I used to work in an office that was all women. Uh, now, I would go out to lunch with four of them, but I would never go out with one. I mean, you, you ought to just draw some arbitrary lines that help you uh, in, in this situation to make your spouse feel uh, more comfortable. Um, if you're the concerned spouse, uh, make your spouse's situation and your attitude about it a specific matter of prayer. And, um, you know, just do everything you can to give your spouse support and confidence. Uh, I'm going to make a statement. You may or may not like it, but it's true. Uh, satisfied sheep are far less likely to stray than unhappy and starving ones. And uh, it is the best medicine in every situation is to keep your own marriage healthy uh, physically healthy emotionally healthy that relationship healthy it is just always it is just the best foundational thing question number two how can I be more affectionate or how do I get my spouse to show more affection and, and I get literally this question every uh, session um, in one form or, or another and again, everybody has a natural disposition. And everybody naturally either expresses their affection 
or they don't express their affection. Listen, they're, you're married to them. They do have affection for you. They do love you. But the expression of that varies from, from person to person. Uh, if you're the person who feels like you're not receiving enough affection, you need to ask yourself some honest questions. Are my expectations for affection from my spouse realistic? You know, some people, you know, they, they expect, like when they come home and they've been away from their dog for two days and the dog just follows them around and, and they expect that when their spouse comes home from work. You know, that's an unrealistic expectation. Are your expectations realistic? Uh, if your expectations are realistic, then in a good time, at a good tone, you, you talk to your spouse about it. If you're the spouse that um, struggles to display affection, again, we all, it do, doesn't mean you don't love your spouse. We all just naturally are more or less e expressive uh, of that. If you're the spouse who struggles to express your affection, number one, you need to recognize it. Number two, you need to make it a matter of prayer. Uh, God, help me to be more expressive of my love for my spouse. And then number three, you just decide, you know, decide that when you come home from work, instead of going in and sitting down, you're going to go over and find your spouse and give them a hug and kiss. You know, we, we are not um, uh, blades of grass that are just blown with, with, with every wind. Uh, we, we have a will. And there's a part of this that, that can be a part of your will. And and just make that decision and seek God's help and be patient with each other because, again, everybody's just different. Question number three, if my husband is not a leader, should I step up or bring this up to him so he will step up? Um, first off, if your husband is not a leader, he already knows it. Uh, every wife can either hinder her husband from becoming a better leader or she can help him become a better leader. You know, in the end, he has to decide to lead, but you can either make that easy or, or make that hard. And so if you want your husband to be a better leader, the first thing you've got to do is pray for him in this, and secondly, do the things that help him become a better leader. You know, one of the things, we talked about this, it's been weeks ago now, young men especially, and most men in general, but young men especially, you just can't, you don't have the internal strength to take every decision you make being criticized. You, you just I mean what's, what's going to happen is you're just going to give up and you're going to stop making decisions because it's the easier route to take. And so you've you got to just decide, don't criticize everything he does. Make sure that that is something that you do sparingly. And I, I believe every man, uh, I don't believe every man can be a great leader, but I, ever, I do believe every man can become a good enough leader to lead his own home. I, I do believe that. God didn't put men in charge of their home because they have no, there's no possibility of that happening. Um, and, and so just work together on this. And again, men are simple creatures. Ladies, you can really help your husband in this or hinder him in this. I, I really, I've seen over the years some women uh, turn their husbands into pretty good leaders who at the start of their marriage, they just w were not a, a leader a at all. Uh, but I do think this, if your husband doesn't step up to spiritually lead your home, I, I believe a godly wife should step up and provide spiritual leadership. 
Now, I do also believe that if he ever decides to step up, you should step back. But listen, just because he is not providing spiritual leadership doesn't mean your home should go without spiritual leadership. Uh, Question number four, how can I determine when my encouragement becomes negative for him? (laughs) I I did chuckle when when I got this question uh, because you need to begin by honestly asking yourself if what you're defining as encouragement is actually more criticism with a good tone than, than encouragement. I mean, everybody loves encouragement. And so if you're, what you're calling encouragement is becoming a negative for him, what it really is is it's not encouragement. It's encouragement in your own mind is probably more likely criticism with a, with a, good, a good tone. I would always say this. Put yourself in the shoes of your spouse and if you were being told whatever it is you're telling them with the frequency you're telling them, would you look at it as encouragement? And if you face that honestly, you, you, you will probably redefine what you're doing. Um, you know, listen, everybody needs and likes encouragement. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is all of us do also need correction sometimes. Uh, we don't like it as much as we like encouragement. And, you know, if you're going to be wise and if you're going to be a godly person, you know, one of the marks of being a wise and godly person is your willingness to receive correction. Um, question number five, what do you do when you're the primary disciplinary, disciplinary parent and the other parent is always the good and fun person? This is an old question and, and, and I just like this question because I just think it's applicable every time because I, so I always put it in, in there. And what I would say is this, is first, again, you have to honestly take a look at yourself. Are you truly a good disciplinary parent? It's very easy to define yourself as a disciplinary parent and the other parent as a slopwad in discipline. You've got to just be honest. Are you really the good disciplinary parent or are you too tough? Are they too lax? You've got to first, you can never fix anything until you properly define the problem. Um, A good disciplinary parent is, number one, tough. But number two, they always balance toughness with relationship. Okay? That's That's how our God, our Heavenly Father, does discipline. Is he strict and tough? Yeah, he's got some pretty strict lines drawn. But is he also offer relationship and kindness and warmth? Yeah, he does that. And, and so that should be your goal. And if you're that primary disciplinary parent and you grow weary of, of that role uh, at times, which you, you will if that's your role in, in your relationship, I will just remind you of this, is that in the end, your children will always love and appreciate the fun parent, but they will always respect uh, the parent that caused them to become what they are. And listen, no person becomes what they, can, what they could be without this balance of both toughness and discipline and warmth and relationship. And it doesn't have to be one or the other. Uh, you know, in an ideal situation, both parents are doing that. And uh, sometimes, you know, it's not ideal. Um, which gets us to our subject today. Should be in Psalm 50. I need a drink of my pop. My sinuses are terrible. 
Um, you know, one of the major areas of uh, disagreement in our home, uh, and which becomes one of the big sources of conflict, is, is how we handle our money. Uh, there was a lot of uh, questions turned in about that on the surveys where we talked about people's hard feelings. Um, there were plenty of hard feelings about that issue. And when it comes to the issues that people feel most strongly about as adults, it's number one, how do we handle the kids? And number two, how do we handle our money? I mean, those two things are, because they're so important to everybody, and anybody who says money doesn't matter to me, they're lying. They're lying. It matters to everybody. It's like oxygen. Everybody needs some. Um, but because these areas are so important, they also become the areas over which it's easy to have conflicts and have hard feelings. And um, there's probably not a couple here who hasn't had a serious disagreement of some sort or hard feelings over money. But before we can talk about bank accounts, spending money, extra purchases, who manages the budget, we, we've got to go back to some basics about wealth and what the Bible teaches about money. I mean, understand this. You as a couple can be in 100% agreement over what to do with your money, but if what you're doing with your money is not something that pleases the Lord or something that's wise, it's not going to work out well for you. You can be in 100% agreement in running your credit card debt up over $10,000 at 21% interest. You could be 100% agreeing that that's the thing to do. But that's a dumb decision. It's going to hurt you. The issue is not really, okay, do we agree on this? The foundational issue is, what does the scripture teach about how we should handle our money? And then when we understand these principles we can work through the details of how we do this together as husbands and wives. And our Creator has a basic plan for every area of life, and His plan leads to a blessed life. And so uh, we begin there. Uh, notice first, in uh, number one, everything belongs to God. Psalm chapter 50, verse 10. It says, For every beast of the forest is mine, and the cattle upon a thousand hills. I know all the fowls of the mountains, and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell thee, for the world is mine, and the fullness thereof. Go back to Psalm 24. <coughs> Does anybody here have uh, sinus problems all the time? It's just such a, such a terrible nuisance. Psalm 24, verse 1, says, The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world, and they that dwell therein. Um, basically, both these psalms, as well as other places in the scriptures, they teach us this foundational principle, everything belongs to God. In fact, if you're saved, you belong to God. If you take notes, write down 1 Corinthians uh, 6, 19, and 20. It says, what? Know you not that, the, that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own? If you're bought with a price, 
Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You and I, if you're a Christian person, we belong to God. Everything in the world belongs to God, and Christian people in particular belong to God. Now, a lot of people have a problem with that. They have a problem with everything belonging to God because they don't know God. And sometimes people who know God as Savior, they're they're saved because they don't know God well. They have a problem with themselves and everything belonging to God because in in, in in their heart, they don't really view God as being good or God as being loving. But understand this, everything belongs to God, but because God loves us, uh, he uses everything in the world as well as his Christian people for good. None of us will ever handle our money well until we acknowledge that everything we have belongs to God and comes from God. Have you ever thought about this? The ability and the health to make money, that comes from God. Listen, there's a lot of people that would love to be able to work but they don't have the ability to work. (laughs) They don't have the health to work. The education and skills that you have to work and make money, they come from God. Listen, there are a lot of people who wish they had education or skill, but they don't have them. Why do you have them? The opportunity to work that comes from God. Listen, there's people with health and education, health and skills, and they're not working. That comes from God. (laughs) Golly. In fact, as much as we like it or dislike it, our ruin or blessing, even after we do things right, that comes from God. Listen, Job was really, really wealthy, and in just a day, he lost all his wealth, and he was the godliest man on the planet. See, this foundational truth that everything belongs to God, it contradicts the basic thinking that everything that I have is mine. Everything we have is ours. That's our basic thinking. We think our life is our own, but if you're a Christian, your life belongs to Christ. He bought you with the price of his blood. Now, because everything belongs to God, God has the authority over who gets what portion of his stuff. God has the authority to give Jeff Bezos $193 billion, which as far as I know, no thought of God whatsoever. Uh, my mom happens to be here. I, would have, uh, I did not put this in here because she was here. I had no idea she'd be here. My grandparents uh, inherit a 65-acre farm. They worked on that until they passed away when they were about 90. And basically, they had nothing. They had the land, and the land produced enough meat and vegetables and things to provide for them. Um, They had food, they had clothing, they had the land. That's all they had. They, as an acknowledgement of their faith, they closed their fruit stand on Sundays. And as a kid, it used to irritate me. My grandfather would give all kinds of things away. Uh, I mean, somebody coming to buy, hey, you have this apple. Again, take this potato. Take that cucumber. I'm like, hey, we're poor, Grandpa. We've given stuff away for. Um, but understand, God decides who gets what. Uh, go back to Psalm 17. He said, well, I don't like what he's decided. Well, he's not taking a vote. 
Listen, if you're looking for a pastor who always understands or agrees with what God does, I'm the wrong guy. I have the same struggles that you guys do. I just simply, I just step back and acknowledge God has the right to do this. And uh, notice what he says in Psalm 17, verse 13. He says, Arise, O Lord, disappoint him, cast him down, deliver my soul from the wicked, which is thy sword, from men, which are thy hand. O Lord, from men of the world, which have their portion in this life, and whose belly thou fillest with thy hid treasure. They are full of children, and leave their rest of their substance to their babes. Did you see that phrase in there? The men of the world which have their portion in this life. Some people have their portion in this life. Some people have their portion in the next life. Um, but God decides. Wealth is not necessarily a sign of God's blessing. And poverty is not necessarily a sign of his displeasure. Many of you thought about the variety of the people who are key figures in the Bible. I mean, Jesus, the apostles, John the Baptist, they were not wealthy at all. Uh, James and John, they came from their dad Zebedee, was a small business owner. Um, they had other servants. And so they were probably middle class, upper middle class kind of people. Matthew was a tax collector. He was probably a fairly wealthy guy. Paul, he was likely on the Sanhedrin. He was trained by Gamaliel. I mean, one of the 10 or 12 brightest minds in the entire country of a bunch of bright minds. He was probably wealthy. I mean, all over the map. Some faithful disciples of Jesus have been rich. Uh, far more of his disciples, though, have been regular people or poor people. There's not a lot of Sam Cathy's. Uh, he's the founder of uh, Chick-fil-A, amen. My wife doesn't like it that much, but I like it. I mean, he, I looked him up. He's worth $6.6 billion. So that's too much for any one person. Says who? What do you care how much everybody else has? By the way, one of the best ways to just know whether you really have a good view on this, are you happy when other people do well? Are you happy when they do better than you? See, that really just exposes the envy and discontent in our heart. I, I'm, man, I'm glad Sam Cathy has $6.6 .6 billion. Maybe he'll do something good with it. But either way, God decides. Now, because God is good and he's trusted some of his land and some of his wealth to my care and my wife, just like you, we acknowledge simply everything belongs to God. None of us will ever handle our money well unless we, <laughs> until we recognize the fact that we are not stewards of our stuff. We are stewards of God's stuff. Everything I have belongs to him. Everything you have belongs to him. We're stewarding his things. Which gets us to our second principle. Go please in your Bible to Malachi chapter 3. To some of you this might be old hat. But whether it's old hat or new hat, it's a good reminder. I think all of us tend to get in a mode where our stuff is our stuff. I had a lot of reminders, like when I was a youth leader and some teenager went out and in the snow in my hood, 
wrote a message on, uh, on ice and scratched it into my hood? Is that either going to make you furious or you're going to say, well, well, that was just stupid. It's just a kid being a kid. What are you doing in my car? I didn't mind. We got a new van first week. Uh, Joe Clow were to use it to pick up kids. It's not mine. By the way, don't buy anything used from me. I, I use it. Now, I know, some of you, I'm, I'm not against those of you who buy stuff and, and, and barely use it. Now, me, I'm just saying, don't buy used things from me because it is truly used. But I digress. Everything belongs to God. Here's number two. We begin demonstrating our faith and acknowledging of God owning everything by giving him the first tenth. We demonstrate our faith and acknowledgement of that by giving God the first tenth. Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yet have you robbed me. But you say, wherein have we robbed thee? Here's God's answer in tithes and offerings. You're cursed with a curse, for you've robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that, ye may, that there may be meat in mine house. And prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and Pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive it. Now that word tithe there, uh, some form of that occurs 43 times in the Bible, 8 in the New Testament. The word literally, the word literally means one-tenth. Tithing did not start with Moses and the giving of the law. Tithing began with Abraham. Uh, if you take notes, Genesis 14, 20, and then again, his grandson Jacob, when he got right with God, he promised God one-tenth, Genesis 28, 22. It didn't start with Moses. It didn't stop with Malachi and the death, resurrection of Jesus and grace. In fact, if you take notes, mark down Matthew 23, 23, Jesus specifically told his people to tithe. Listen, grace... And Christ always motivate us to do more than any unsaved, than any Jew living under law ever was motivated to do. Now, I'm not here this morning to discuss the tithing, the gross, or the net, or gifts, or things like that. I'm just saying we should do it. And I'm also saying this. You and I will never get God's best blessings doing the least we can do. Go up in your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. It's a great Bible principle when it comes to giving. We started Bible Baptist Church. I purposed at that time I was not going to talk about money much because I felt like uh, some churches talk about it too much. And I felt like the public perception of churches was that it was talked about too much. And now as I look back over the last 15 years, I think sometimes I've failed in not talking about it enough. Because it is a key, prominent teaching through the scriptures. And how we handle our money is one of the greatest examples of practically how we follow our faith. But here's a great Bible principle here. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. He says, but this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. He which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. In other words, if you sow a few seeds, you're just going to reap a few. You sow a lot of seeds, you're going to reap a lot. Verse 7 says, Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. 
Now, Paul turns this sowing principle around and applies it to the way we give. And if we give sparingly and grudgingly, we reap sparingly and minimally. If we give graciously and generously and cheerfully, we reap the same way. Tithing will not make you rich, but you will have more than you would have had if you refused to tithe, because tithing brings a blessing. Keeping the tithe for yourself, it will not make you poor. But you have less in life than you ever would have had if you chose to tithe. By by the way, just for the record, I have no idea who gives what at Bible Baptist Church. I purposely remain ignorant. I have no idea who gives other than me. Uh, I don't want anybody to ever feel like uh, the way I treated them or how I handled them had anything to do with what they gave or didn't give. I, I, I di- didn't give. I have no idea. Now, other pastors handle that differently. That's the way I handle it. Uh, I'm just saying this. Uh, when we give and when we tithe in particular, it is a demonstration of our faith. You see, because worse than missing the blessings of giving, not tithing demonstrates the fact that we do not believe that everything we have belongs to God. Have you ever really thought about this? Nearly every major life decision, it has an aspect of faith. I mean, think about this. What am I going to do with my Sunday? Whether we have faith in God, that impacts that decision, doesn't it? Is Sunday your, your day or the Lord's day? That's a decision that, that's a faith. How will we treat other people when they mistreat us? Does our faith have something to say about that? What kind of morality will we choose? Does our faith have something to say about that? How will we raise our children? With what priorities will we live as a family? I mean, faith has a response. By the way, how we handle our money as a couple, faith has a response. Will I believe what God has said in this subject, or will I believe this world or my feelings in this subject? Will I believe that will I believe that me and my family are in some way better off living on 90% than if I kept it all? Will I somehow believe God is going to bless my obedience? And by the way, God primarily provides through work diligent work and managing what he gives us well will i adjust my lifestyle to fit 90 percent of my income instead of 100 faith has a response will i believe the lifestyle and the things i can afford on 90 percent are better for me and my family than if i don't do that you may not agree but i believe that people who tithe have better jobs and more stuff on the 90% that remains than they would ever have if they kept it off for themselves. And you can believe whatever you want, but I believe God blesses obedience. The two most telling areas of the depth of our faith, they're not how much you run around the auditorium and shake your hands and, and, and all that. The two most telling areas of the depth of our faith, how we handle our children, and how we handle our money. I've known a lot of people who seemed to have strong faith when they handled themselves, but when it came to their children, they didn't prioritize faith in their children's lives. Same thing with money. 
By the way, I'm not teaching this because I, I want your money. I have no idea how much money you give. For all I know, everybody in here uh, ties, for all I know. Or for all I know, nobody in here does. I'm teaching you this because I want you to have a blessed life. I want you to have a blessed marriage. I want you to have blessed finances. I want you to have a healthy relationship with God, which gets us to our third thing. Go in your Bible to Matthew 6. Remember, we cannot get to next week where we talk about the specifics of handling our money together as a couple until we have uh, a foundation of how Scripture teaches us to handle our money. Remember, you can both agree, hey, we're going to go buy this car at a a buy here, pay here lot and pay 25% interest on that. You can be in full agreement as a couple about that, and that's still a dumb decision. The issue is, what do the Scriptures teach? And if we're in full agreement about something that's wrong, it doesn't make it right. Notice this third principle, here it is. Our heart will follow what we decide to treasure. Matthew 6, verse 19. Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Notice, and you should highlight that in your Bible, that your heart follows your treasure. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Your heart follows your treasure. Because in the end, in verse 24, nobody can serve two masters. You either hate the one, love the other, else you hold the one, love and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And mammon is a, a word for riches. But our heart will go to whatever we decide to treasure. You say, what does that mean? It means if you decide to treasure your job, your heart will go to your job means if you decide to treasure sports, your heart will go to sports. means if you decide to treasure your family and home, your heart will go to your family and home. means if you decide to treasure God and the things of God, your heart will go to what you do. whatever it is you decide to treasure and prioritize in your life, your heart will go to it. And in verse 24, it is impossible to have a heart on God and a heart on riches. You say, why? I can do both. No, only one thing can be on the throne of your life. You're either going to make decisions based on the fact that you belong to God and God is in control and everything is His and the things that He taught matter, matter most, or you're going to make decisions, this makes my, me and my family the most money, and I don't care if it takes me out of church, I don't care if it gives me less time with my wife, I don't care if it gives me less time with my children, it gives me the most money. Only one thing can be in your throne. Where's your treasure? Which gets us to our last thing this morning, Proverbs 22. Just basic foundation. I mean, next, next week we will... I'll make a bunch of applications. How do I, should we combine bank accounts? Should we have credit cards? How can we afford the toys my wife or my husband wants? Should we build a budget? Uh, what do you do when one spouse makes more money than the other? Uh, how should we make decisions about major purchases? How should we handle day-to-day things? We, we can't even approach those questions until we have a foundation. Here's the fourth brick of our foundation will be done in 
Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 7 says, The rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. By the way, that last phrase there, that is a great Bible principle. The borrower is servant to the lender. You become a servant to any person or any institution you borrow from. And that's our fourth principle. Minimize your debt and guard against bad debt. Now there may be the nothing that's truly good debt, uh, but there's some debt that's better than others. Let me just say this. All credit card debt is bad debt. Now, you, you ought to make your goal zero credit card debt. Uh, now you could make the case if you didn't pay your Uh, too much for your house and you own at least 20% of its value, you couldn't make the case that that's more of an investment than than, than debt. I I, I get that, Uh, but the principle is the same. The borrower is a servant to the lender. And I could spend a whole message on this, but I just want to just simply close by saying this. Avoid as much debt as possible and get out of credit card debt as soon as you can if you have it. This is a foundation. And it is on this foundation, their Bible principles, everything I just told you, there is zero question about any of that being true. So the real the question is, how do we practically apply these Bible principles as individuals and as Christian people so that we can handle our money well as a couple and have less disagreements and no serious disagreements over our money those are good questions should have a piece of paper and um, write a question a smiley face a sarcastic remark I love those and then just fold it in half and stick it in our jug up here And you're dismissed.